All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome. My name is Dave Tish. If we have not met, I'm so glad to be back with you as we walk through the book, Abraham, a field guide to loving God, in which we are examining the life of Abraham and what his life shows us about what it means to love God. Now, if you haven't been here, we just took a two week break from that. Just to let's be honest, we had to pace ourselves. It was just too much. It's like Thanksgiving. You just can't go back in for seconds that quick. You got to back off, let it digest. Now for the past two lessons that we've learned for the past couple of weeks, we've learned two important lessons. One of them is the first lesson that Abraham teaches us about what it means to love God is to be loyal to God above all other gods, above anything else, that God has number one priority in our life. And then the second lesson we learned is to obey God, even if it doesn't make sense. And Abraham teaches us that that's what God wants, and that's what it means to love God, that we trust him, that he's good, um, even in the middle of circumstances that we can't understand. Today, we're going to look at the third lesson that Abraham teaches us. But to introduce that lesson, I want to start off with a story. This is a story about a man named Dirk Willems. This is actually an old woodcutting depicting a scene of Dirk Willems. Now, Dirk lived in the Netherlands in the 1500s, and Dirk had a problem. Dirk was a theologian who had a theological conviction in which he disagreed with somebody. Now, this is the days before Twitter and Facebook and all those kinds of things, and so he didn't do it online, but he had a beef. See, Dirk believed to his core something about baptism. Dirk believed that babies should not be baptized, that it only baptized people who were actually old enough to make a decision to be a disciple of Jesus. And so that's what Dirk believed. And he, because he believed this, that put him at odds with someone very powerful. And that someone very powerful was the entire Roman Catholic Church. And so as a result of that, because this is before the days of, uh, in, in, in his day, there was no separation of church and state, the state had the power to arrest you. And if your beliefs were in direct contradiction to the Roman Catholic Church, you could actually be tried and executed. So Dirk was actually a man who was wanted for these kind of crimes of believing something other than what the church believed. And so he ran away and he got caught and he was jailed and he was jailed in this big tower and he was up there and they were going to put him on trial and they were even going to execute him. And so Dirk got one winter night, Dirk got some rags and he tied them together and like Rapunzel kind of like let himself down out of the tower and he started to run away. Now his jailer, who was on the ground floor, actually heard him trying to escape and ran after him. There was this huge pond, and it was winter, it was December, it was freezing. And so Dirk kind of ran across the pond, and his jailer was on his heels behind him. And then his jailer actually fell through the pond and actually cried out for help because he was there, he was sinking in the pond, he couldn't get out, and he would die and freeze to death if someone didn't help him. And so Dirk stopped, turned around, walked back across the ice, and help the man out of the ice, where he was caught, arrested, and then burned at the stake. This is the story of Dirk Willems. And if we think about it, the story of Dirk, which is, again, a matter of historical record, is actually a story uh, about so many things. It's worthy of reflection. But one of the main ideas is the idea of injustice. This is a story, in some ways, about injustice. Dirk was in unjustly incarcerated for just having a religious belief that was different than other people's, a, a debatable uh, religious belief I'll, I'll have, I'll, I'll include. It was also an issue of injustice that he was killed for believing something that was different. That's unjust. But also Dirk Willems taught us about what it means to turn 
toward justice and away from injustice because Dirk Willems turned toward justice when he stopped and he refused to let another image bearer die in the icy waters because he had the power to save him. And so in another way, Dirk acted justly and avoided injustice and it cost him, but that's what Dirk showed us there. The point is that this story is kind of about justice, and that's the third lesson that we're going to look at for this week and next week. For the next two weeks, we're going to look at the issue of justice and what it means to be a just person. And this is the third lesson that we learn from the life of of Abraham. Now, the reason why we're going to get into this is because the story takes us there. We're going to turn to Genesis 18. I'm going to show you a little bit about what's going on. And as we get into the story, you're going to see that this is how the story goes. Now, what happens in Genesis 18 is God actually comes down and talks to Abraham. Now, he appears at the very same place that Abraham has um, has, has made his camp. And this is the, this, God has now appeared to Abraham multiple times. So God has shown up multiple times and God shows up for this time to do something very particular. And I want you to pay attention to what has, what is happening here, because this is again about justice. And this is the third lesson. The third lesson from Abraham is that we seek justice, that loving God means that we seek justice. We love what's right. We do what's right. And we help set things right. And we get this lesson from the story of Abraham and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is one of the bigger, um, one of the bigger stories in Abraham's life. And we're going to spend two weeks on it, but we're going to zone in it right here and kind of go into the intro. So here's what happens in Genesis 18. The Lord said, the Lord comes down and meets Abraham at these trees. And um, this is what he says. He explains why he's there, what he's doing there at these trees. He says this, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, this term outcry is astonishing for a number of reasons because it shows, and this is the first thing, that when there's a big outcry, God actually hears it and then comes down and gets involved. This is very good news if you think about it. If you think about it, we have a God who actually hears when bad things are happening, when oppression is happening, when injustice is happening, when those cries, just like when Dirk Willems was on that pond and that jailer cried out and Dirk heard it and turned and responded, God hears cries of injustice. He actually turns and moves and investigates and personally gets involved. This is very, very good news. Now, this term outcry is actually a loaded word. It's pretty it's, it's actually a hard word to read about because it's, it's, a, it's a dark word. Uh, we first hear the term outcry in the story of Cain and Abel. Do you remember when Cain kills Abel and it says that his blood cried out from the ground? Do you remember that? And then God comes and gets, investigates, and God comes down and actually confronts Cain and says, hey, sin's like a, like a roaring animal at your door. It seeks to devour you. You, you, need, to, you need to flee from that. And then there's another uh, uh, situation after that in Genesis 6 when, when uh, it's right before Noah and the story of Noah and the flood. It says that humanity had descended into such evil and wickedness that God saw and it came and he investigated this. And it said that every impulse and every instinct and every action and every thought of every man everywhere was only evil all the time. And God regrets that he made mankind and he, he confronts that. 
And then there's the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where uh, mankind is trying to build the society without God to try to become God. And God hears and comes down and investigates. The, the word outcry is also used later in the book of Exodus when the Hebrew people are enslaved and they cry out to God for 400 years and God comes and investigates. And then in the Mosaic law, the word outcry is used perhaps most viscerally in the Mosaic law when a woman is being sexually assaulted and she cries out. That's where that word is used there as well. And so it's used, it's a, it's a dark word. In fact, this is a, a definition or a, a sentence that uh, I found that was helpful. It said, this word outcry is a charged word referring to the plaintive, desperate, aching cry for help from someone being violated or oppressed. And God hears those cries. They reach him. That's from the author David Tish in his book, Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God. That's me. I just quoted myself in my own sermon. I don't even think you're allowed to do that. That breaks all the rules. Stay tuned. We're going to break some more. It's going to be fun. You're thinking to yourself, this is crazy. He's quoting himself. This is nuts. It's so meta. Okay. So that's what the outcry is. That's what's going on. God has heard an outcry from the city, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's come down to investigate. And this outcry is, is kind of a hint that there's a grave injustice. Just like Dirk Willems heard the man cry out and he turned and did something, God hears a cry and then turns and he does something. But it gets even more interesting. As God comes down, he, he shows up at Abraham's tent and Abraham immediately springs into action and offers him some food and a meal. And then as God is walking off, God says almost rhetorically, to him and his two companions, his two angel companions. This is what it says in Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Basically, God's like, hey guys, should I let Abraham in on my business? Now, here's what's exceptional about this. Why would God ever let any humans in on his business? He's God. Why would he let us know anything? In fact, why has God even come down to investigate? It's not like God isn't omniscient. He could go and see what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah from wherever he's sitting, from wherever he is in God's space or heaven, right? He doesn't need to come down. What's going on here? The authors are making it clear that God is trying to do something. He's involving humans in his business, which is exceptional because this is what God wants. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but God is in the business of involving people in his business. He shares with us what's going on, what he wants, what he wants done. And he invites us to participate with him as faithful covenant partners in the work that he's doing in the world. This is exceptional, like true sons and true daughters, like co-regents, like representatives. This is what God is inviting us to do. And he's showing us that this is his heart not just in the opening pages of Genesis, but in the opening stories in here in the life of Abraham. He's inviting Abraham into his business. And he says, yes, I will share. And then God continues, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. And then God continues, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. 
So tied up in this incredible promise that God will bless all the nations, eventually you and I know, we fast forwarded through the story, that Jesus himself will be born through the lineage of Abraham, that he's the father of faith of all who believe in the God of Abraham. There's some amazing, huge things that are going to happen in the life of Abraham, but part of it is tied up in the idea that Abraham is right and just, and he practices the way of the Lord, and the way of the Lord, or living like the Lord would live, is to do right and just, to be right and just, these two words, right and just. Now, we're going to pause here for a second, and I'm going to introduce you to two words in Hebrew that are my two favorite words. These words, right and just, and we're going to take a few moments and just completely nerd out grammatically in the Hebrew world because this is so much fun. We're going to stare at these two words, right and just, because God says that Abraham is going to teach his children and his household these, the way of the Lord, because he is these two words, these two words, which are the word in Hebrew, siddika and mishpat. Because of siddika and mishpat, God is going to actually bring his good world and in, 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 in do what he has promised to Abraham. Now, these words, siddika and mishpat, let's practice saying it. First off, let's say siddika. It's siddika. So siddika, say it. Excellent. Actually, somebody kind of messed up. Let's do that one more time. Ready? One, two, three, siddika. Okay, now the second word is the word for justice. That's the word mishpat. Say mishpat. Better. That was good. Siddika and mishpat right there. Those are the two words. Now, let me talk about what these words mean because there's a world of meaning in them. And if we just pause and really let these words sink in, I think it can actually be instructive to teach us not only who God is, but who he wants us to be. Because again, God upholds Abraham as somebody who practices Siddiqah and Mishpat, who does Siddiqah and Mishpat. And that is a good thing. It's the way of the Lord. And it's what God himself wants. It's one of the ways that God will bring about his goodness into the world to be a blessing to all the nations in a world filled with oppression and injustice. God wants his Selim, his faithful image bearers, to be people who look like him, who have his same ethical quality, who practice Siddiqah and Mishpat. So what does that mean to be a people who practice Siddiqah and Mishpat? So first, Siddiqah. It's the word translated as righteousness in your Bible. It's used more than 159 times in the Old Testament. And the root word in Hebrew for Siddiqah is the word Siddiqah, which means straight, or true. For example, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, if you have measures that are accurate, they're setic measures. It would be like a measuring cup that's setic. It's right. It's true. A line that measures things that's straight and true is setic, right? It's straight. It's unbroken. It's not bent or marred or twisted. It's as it should be. And the word setica means for humans to be in right, correct, straight relationship. What that means is not just relationship with God, but of course it means with God first that we're in a right relationship with God, but it also has a deeply social implication. It's also social that we're in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. Think of a family. If you are in Sedekah in your family, you have a right relationship with your dad and mom and a right relationship with your brothers and sisters. It's this way and it's this way. There's also an implication of being in right relationship with creation, but that's kind of nuanced and I don't want to get into that. But that's the whole idea. Sedekah means a right relationship, a straight, true relationship with God and with others. 
It means doing things the way they should be done. But then the word, there's the word mishpat. Mishpat is the word translated as justice. It's used 149 times in the Old Testament. And what this word means is it's kind of like giving someone their due or giving somebody what should be given to them. Let me give you an example. Um, in the Hebrew system, there was uh, 12 tribes, and they each pulled from the 12 tribes these priests who were called Levites, and they served at the temple. Now, these people that were pulled from the 12 tribes, that these people that were pulled and were serving as priests, they couldn't work the fields. They couldn't cattle farm or tend to sheep because they're busy running the temple. And so what God commands Moses to do is that every tribe would kind of pitch in some food, pitch in some, some food and some um, su- 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 supplies for them, and they were to give that to the temple priests. And that's called their mishpat, their due. Because they couldn't do this, and so they have to be given this. The word is to like, it means to be set right or to be rectified. That's another word, rectified. The idea is to make right if something has been done wrong or has been gone wrong. The idea is this, that sedekah is the way that we should live, and mishpat is the way things are set right if we don't do sedekah. So in theory, if we all did sedekah perfectly, there would be no need for mishpat. Does that make sense? Because we would be in right relationship. There would be no need for justice or to set things right because everything would be right. But we're, of course, not perfect. And so there's a need. And so God and the biblical authors link these two words together, Siddiqah and Mishpat. They're linked together dozens of times. It's called a hendiadis. It's a, a Hebrew expression that means one through two. It's like the left and the right speaker on your AirPods. You know, it, it's, it's peanut butter and jelly. They go better together. Let me give you some examples of Siddiqah and Mishpat. I could give you, there's literally hundreds. I could give you uh, so many examples. I'm going to choose one from the book of Ezekiel, which is a little longer, a little long form. So let's just stare at this passage. Look at what God says. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. So this is God speaking. Let me just read this and you'll kind of get a, a flavor for what it means to be a person who practices Siddiqah and Mishpat. So here it is. It's in Ezekiel 18. God says, suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just, that's the word uh, uh, um, mishpat, and right, siddikah. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took and pledged for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. Now, before we go on, just look at that. There's a number of things going on here. This is what God says is what it means to be a, per- a person who practices Siddiqan Mishpat. First of all, there's some internal things. Do you see that his private worship is pure? He does not worship idols. So there's this God element, right? This right relationship. But there's also this social element. Look what he does. He doesn't oppress anyone. Um, he returns what he takes in return for the pledge of, for a loan. He doesn't commit robbery, but he gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing to the naked. And then it continues on in Ezekiel 18. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit for them. He he withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Again, do you see the privateness? He he meditates and he keeps God's laws on his heart, right? There's the private relationship, the religion, but then there's also the social that he doesn't lend to people at, at interest. He doesn't steal from people. He judges fairly between two parties. 
in essence, people ask me all the time, how would you define this? Here's how I do it, and maybe this is helpful. Um, Sedeca is how we aim to live in front of God with each other, and mishpat is how we make things right when things go wrong. And so, of course, these words are linked together by biblical authors. Again, in theory, there'd be no need for mishpat if everyone did sedeca perfectly, but we can't. So, that's what the biblical authors are talking about with Sedekah and Mishpat. This is what God upholds. Now, this is a little bit strange for me, because when I was growing up, I was basically taught that Christianity was about believing the right things, that you had to pledge um, some belief to Jesus, and if you just believed, then somehow when you died, God would scan your brain like a UPC code, and if you believe the right things, you would get into heaven and live forever. But it certainly didn't influence the way that I lived. It was not even a part of how I lived. It was just what I believed. I think this is a caricature of what faith is. I don't think this is what God is asking. God wants us to be faithful covenant partners who look like him. We're supposed to look like his son Jesus. Eventually, Jesus would come and show us the way to truly be human, to live what it means to be human. And God is asking us, and I think Abraham is showing us, that God wants his ethical image bears to look like him, to practice siddhaka and mishpat, because God is a God who does siddhaka and mishpat. God is a God who always does what's right and who sets things right when they've been done wrong. So, now we have to talk about another aspect of this, and that is this idea, this word justice in our culture today is a little bit weird. Sometimes the cultural concepts of what justice is and what the Bible says about justice can either be at odds or they can be muddled or they're confusing. Now, sometimes even even today, when I talk about justice, when I started talking about justice in this book in light of Abraham, people would get on edge. Maybe even you are on edge. Culture has become like a buzzword, you know, this word justice has been co-opted by so many different people. There's so many words swirling around. The internet's awful. And so how are we going? And maybe right now you're, you're feeling a little tension. You're like, oh man, I, I just relax. It's okay. This is part of what the Bible talks about. So let's just observe it. Sometimes when I would start talking about justice, um, people would say, are you a Marxist? And I'd be like, man, I don't even watch the Marx Brothers. I don't even watch those old movies. And they're like, no, you, like a Marxist. And I'm like, well, no, Luke's my favorite gospel. I don't, maybe John, I, I don't know what you're talking about. The idea is that these words are, have been co-opted and it's a little weird. But like, look, we want to be biblically literate people and we want to take God seriously. And we want to be thoughtful about this. So in my study of these words, Siddhaka and Mishpat, I just wanted to share with you a couple of observations about how the rest of the biblical authors talk about Siddhaka and Mishpat. Just give you kind of an overview, a smattering. Now, this is going to set us up for next week when we talk about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a terrible story. It's it's just awful, uh, but it's so important for us to look and see and stare at. So we're going to look at that next week. That's that's, that's, That's next week. That's kind of part two of this. So we're going to pause for a second and just talk about some observations about Siddhaka and Mishpat, about what the biblical authors say about this. I'm going to share with you um, some passages from the Mosaic Law, 
some, some passages from the prophets, from the psalmists, from the Proverbs, from the writer of Proverbs. And, and we're even going to look at some stuff in the New Testament that the New Testament authors talk about. But we're going to try to stay in the Old Testament because these two Hebrew words, Siddiquah and Mishpat, are Old Testament Hebrew words. So let's just take a look at this. And I'm, going to take, I'm just going to make a couple of observations that have been helpful for me as I've tried to process what does our culture say about justice? What, is, what do I think about justice? And what, is, what do I think the Bible is trying to say about justice? And I, again, I want to align myself with what I think the Bible says. Hopefully this is helpful. So, first thing, as I stared at Siddiquah and Mishpat, you realize that biblical justice, Siddiquah and Mishpat, is about communal flourishing, not just about what I get. It's not just about me and my rights, but it's about communal flourishing. There's an idea that someone who practices Siddiquah and Mishpat has in their heart and mind people, his community, a group, not just himself. There's no private individualism in the Hebrew way of thinking. We're all connected to each other. One, I can never be what I was meant to be without being connected to you. We are connected in this web of mutuality, and there's, it's inescapable. That's the Hebrew thinking. So this private individualism, just do whatever is good for me, that, that, that escapes. Take a look at Deuteronomy 24 from the Mosaic Law. Take a look at how this communal aspect of it kind of meets itself out. This is God's command to Moses. When, and this is to, to the farmers and the people who are in, in, in the Hebrew nation. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Again, do you see the care and concern for the whole community, especially on those, to those on the edges of society who are weakest and most vulnerable? This isn't just about maximizing your profits, right? That would be double gleaning. It says actually leave that stuff for the people who don't have a field or can't, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the poor. So there's a concern for the whole community. Secondly, uh, the second value, biblical justice, Siddiquah Mishpat, is about taking extreme ownership. This is about cleaning up messes that you didn't make, that you didn't cause. And every parent everywhere understands exactly what this is. Parenting is nothing but cleaning up messes that you're not responsible for. But if you think about it, in our society, when we take extreme ownership, we solve problems that we weren't responsible for, that it's not our fault. Uh, for example, there was a uh, my kids were in this, uh, this school, and the school actually just lost the ability to have playground equipment um, because all the, the, the balls got broken or they p popped and all the bats were taken and some stuff got stolen and there was no playground equipment for the kids. And so this dad went out and spent hundreds of his own dollars to buy playground equipment for the kids. And he had a checkout system and he organized it through the school was it that dad's fault that that stuff got broken or beaten or stolen? No, not at all. But he took it upon himself to solve a problem that he didn't create because that's what it means to take extreme ownership. And by the way, did Jesus clean up some messes that he didn't make that he wasn't responsible for? Boy, howdy. Uh, there's a, a story in Daniel where Daniel does this. Look at how Daniel takes extreme ownership. Um, 
This is from the book of Daniel. He's praying for his people. He says, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Now, if you know anything about the story, what's fascinating about this is Daniel uses the we term, but he did none of this. Daniel did not sin. He did not rebel. He did not, he was not wicked. He did not turn away from the Lord, but he's identifying with this community and, and entering into and saying, I'm part of this and we're going to clean this up. I'm going to lead the people back to the God that we serve. Third, third value, as I stare at this, that biblical advo- uh, justice is about advocacy and speaking for those who can't speak. Again, we looked at this a little bit in Deuteronomy. There's this quartet of the vulnerable that show up in the Old Testament again and again. The foreigner, the fatherless or the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And that our job is to see these people who are powerless. These are the most powerless on the edges of society. And we should have an eye toward them because God has an eye toward them. And we should speak up for them. Proverbs 31 says, the the author of Proverbs says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Tim Keller puts it this way, if God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him to have the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak, then what should God's people be like? They must be people who are likewise passionately concerned for the weak and for the vulnerable. The third value, fourth value, I'm sorry, uh, Siddiquan Mishpat, biblical justice, is about reconciliation. It's not just about issues. It's about real people. And it's not just about making things right alone. It's about being involved in an intimate family. God's metaphor for humanity in, in the church is a family. It's brotherhood, that we should see one another as brothers. Second uh, Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gives us the ministry of reconciliation. This is a relational word that means be brought back into right relationship. So of course it's about issues, but it's also about people primarily because people bear the image of God. And then lastly, just an idea that, that Siddiquan Mishpat, biblical justice, is about living out these things. It's not just about words or posting on social media, which probably does nothing. It's about living this out. In some ways, you could say that right now in our cultural moment, cultural justice is offering an explanatory rationale for why things are the way they are and how they should be the way people want them to be. But biblical justice is about a justifying motivation. It's the why behind why we move. And the answer is, it's because God is like this. God is a God of justice. God is a God who does things right. He's, God practices Siddiquah and Mishpat. So I want to be a person who practices Siddiquah and Mishpat. Now, before we go any further, one last thought. As we get into the story of Abraham, next week we're going to look at this idea of Siddiquah and Mishpat and how Abraham actually pleads for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to look at how justice and righteousness and those ideas play out in this story. And let me tell you, it doesn't end well. Justice and righteousness does not prevail in that story. And it turns real bad. That's a spoiler alert. But perhaps you feel the same way about our world right now. Our world is filled with people who do not practice Siddiquah and Mishpat. There is a lack of Siddiquah 
and mishpat in the world. And you know it, and I know it. There is injustice, and there is an outcry from all sorts of segments of society and the world about injustice that's been done. And sometimes, if I'm honest, it's really overwhelming. There are national issues that are so big, global issues that are so big, I don't even know how to tackle them. I don't know how to even think about them, let alone do something about it. I'm not the president. I'm not in charge of the UN. I can't make laws or pass sweeping legislation or, or, or do anything about some of these big issues. And so if I'm honest, sometimes I think to myself, I'm just overwhelmed. It's like, help, God, I'm completely overwhelmed at this. So how should we proceed and I think the Bible's pretty clear about this too. We proceed by doing justice and righteousness. We just be, we become people individually and collectively who practice Siddiqah and Mishpat. We do what is right before our God. And when we see something broken, we help set it right. This past weekend, my good buddy, Jay Kim, who's on our staff at Westgate Church, shared a story. This is me and Jay. Um, Jay's a dear friend, and he shared the story and gave me permission to share it. See, Jay grew up in the Bay Area. In fact, he grew up right near our Saratoga campus in Westgate, and right behind our campus, there's this little tiny strip mall. His mom, who was a Korean immigrant, a, a single mom who just was trying to raise her son, had a little dry cleaning shop behind that are, where our current church is located. Little would Jay know that he would grow up to become a pastor at that church. It's just insane. It's right there. And so Jay was there, and he's in fourth or fifth grade, and he would just go there after school and play stickball or practice dribbling a basketball. And there was an older man, he's probably 70, almost maybe even 80, who would come in. He was a regular customer, and he would drop off his pants to be cleaned and be tailored and drop off his shirts to be dry cleaned. And he saw Jay... And Jay was like fourth or fifth grade, and uh, Jay was playing with a baseball. He was throwing it up against the wall and catching it in his glove. And this, this gentleman, who was a, a loyal patron, says, you, you like baseball? And Jay's like, I love baseball. And he's like, have you ever been to a baseball game? And Jay's like, no, I've never, never been to a baseball. Jay was the, the, the son of a, a Korean immigrant who was working like 100 hours a week just to make ends meet to live in the Bay. Of course, he'd never been to a baseball game. He didn't even have a dad who was in the picture. And so this, this elderly gentleman says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite a couple of your friends. I'm going to take you and two other friends to a baseball game. We're going to go to the A's game. Now, I know it's a little bit of heresy because the Giants are on top. Uh, but th it, at that point, Jay was a huge A's fan because it was in the 90s with the Bash Brothers, you know, with uh, Canseco and with uh, Mark McGuire and steroids. Uh, we didn't know it was steroids, but that's what it was. Um, and so Jay was a huge A's fan. So the, the next, a couple days later, this gentleman picks up Jay and his two friends. And I mean, he gets to go to school and invite his two closest friends to come with him to the A's game. And they go to the game. And the, this, this gentleman doesn't just take him to the game. He takes him to the seats in the lower level. And as they're walking in, Jay's like, man, these seats are good seats. And as they walk in, they realize they are sitting in the front row, in the first row, right behind home plate, literally the best seats in the house. And Jay and his friends are there, and the gentleman says, hot dogs, popcorn, ice cream, all of it, it's on me, anything you want. So Jay and his friends eat till they're almost ill. And the game is the A's versus the Mariners, and on the Mariners team is Jay's favorite player, who would go on to be Jay's favorite player of all time, Ken Griffey Jr., a young Ken Griffey Jr. His swing 
was as beautiful as a Hawaiian sunset. It was just poetry in motion. It's never iffy if it's Griffey. And during this game, Ken Griffey Jr. hit a 500-foot home run, and Jay got to see all of it. And what's my point in that story? Like, this man couldn't solve all of Jay's problems. He, he couldn't be Jay's dad. He's an, an old 70 or 80-year-old man. But what he did is he saw someone in need. He saw a little boy without a father. He took it upon himself to take extreme ownership. He looked to the edges of society and saw a boy on the margin. And then in his own way, he was generous and he tried to make things right. Now, here's where this matters. Jay still remembers that game like it were yesterday. That game happened more than 30 years ago and it made a lasting impact on the heart of this little boy. This is what it means to be a person of justice and righteousness. This is what it means to be a person who practiced siddiqah and mishpat. Is it a big deal? In the grand scheme of things, maybe not. But did it make a big difference in the life and the heart of Jay? Absolutely. Let us be people of siddiqah and mishpat. Let us see with the same eyes that God sees. Let us act in the same way that God acts as best we can and partner with him to be people of siddiqah and mishpat because you never know what a difference it will make in the life of someone. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, Spirit Jesus, thank you for the models and examples of justice and righteousness in the Bible. Just even as we survey it in our own mental space, as we think about all the ways that you are good and that you set things right, God, you are a God of justice and righteousness. You are the mighty judge who is just and right all the time, and we are not. And we ask for your help to be people who are better at this. And we cannot do this on our own. We need your help. We need your spirit to animate and change us from people who are selfish and preoccupied with self and do not pay attention to people who see the way that you see, who practice justice and righteousness the way that you do. Help us become those people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks.